And Nehemiah um, lived in the palace of the king of Persia, the ruler of the world at the time. And as a young leader, he had kind of climbed the ranks of management. He had reached the pinnacle of management. He had a lot of influence and power. He got to speak into things that other people didn't get to speak into. He was the cupbearer to the king. And that came with a lot of responsibilities. We kind of looked at this guy. He didn't just get to taste the wine before giving it to the king. He actually had authority and clout, responsibility, influence, all these great things. But somewhere along the line, he hears of the plight of his people. Notice, though, it's a people that he's not directly in like personal relations with. He's related to them through his ethnicity and his religion. So his people that were in exile, captivity, for years and years and years, get released from captivity. They go back to their home, and they find their city completely in ruins. I mean, the town is in rubble, and everything's burned down, and no gates, no protection. And in that day and age, having walls around your city was vital because you'd have all kinds of people that come in and wreak havoc on your people. Uh, They would come in, they would uh, kill people, take people captive, they would abuse women and children. It was a horrible situation, so the walls were important, and they didn't have walls. Nehemiah gets news of this, and it just devastates him. While he's sitting in, in comfort, and he's sitting living the high life, his people that he doesn't directly know, but he does care about them, uh, they're struggling, and they've had a hard time, and that just sits heavy on his heart. So heavy on his heart that he can't function. You get toward the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, this guy can't do anything, so much so that the king notices something's wrong with this guy. And so he asks what's going on, he has the courage, he steps forward, And as the story goes, he gets permission, power, authority, paperwork, everything he needs, an entourage, the whole deal, to go back to uh, his people and rebuild the walls of the city. So he arrives on the scene, and I love reading through Nehemiah. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, if you don't follow Jesus, you can still learn a ton about leadership from this guy, Uh, one of the greatest leaders to ever live. I mean, we learn through this series that against great opposition, he stayed focused on the task that he was called to do. And he accomplished this task. Against internal opposition, he was able to lead through internal conflict and calm people down. Just an incredible amount of leadership. He displayed patience and courage. Uh, He went before his people. He always went first. He didn't just command them and manage them, though he developed an incredible management system to accomplish this job. He actually got his hands dirty in the work and actually came alongside his people. All of this stuff was great. But at the end of chapter 6, the wall's finished. Like, we read about that last week. Like, the wall gets done, and so from 7 and on, you have this cool theme that takes place. Now, hold on to that thought. The same time that Nehemiah is leading, so is a young leader named Ezra. And Ezra was leading a similar building project. He was rebuilding the temple. And after the temple got rebuilt, there's still more to read in his story. So it's this really interesting literary device that takes place, structure, if you will. They rebuild the physical walls, Then they shift their attention, both Ezra and Nehemiah, to rebuilding and strengthening the people of God. So they rebuild physically, and then they focus on rebuilding spiritually. What you see take place is a revival after chapter 6, right? A revival. They then present the people with a truth that the people could not ignore. I mean, revival happens when you are impacted by a truth, so much so that you have to do something about it. Otherwise, it's simply knowledge. I mean, you can learn a lot of things. But the kind of knowledge that you get that changes the direction of your life, that's a revival by definition. It changes you, changes the direction you're going. It brings out of you something that that knowledge could only do. You weren't going to do that on your own. And so I don't know if you're like me, but I've had a few kind of revival moments in my life. 
Uh, maybe you've had conversations where you've sat with people, and maybe it wasn't always comfortable. Revival's not always comfortable. But maybe you've had conversations with people where they began to speak to you, and what they told you impacted your life from that moment on. It became a pivotal point in your life. You were headed in one direction, you encountered a truth, and you headed in a different direction because of your encounter with that truth. And if you're like me, you've had multiple times where that's taken place. And then you think, where would I have been if I didn't have that conversation? And here's the deal. Here's the most fascinating part. Sometimes the people having the conversation with you don't even know it's impacted you that much. Right? God just uses that truth to do something in your heart to change your life. I remember one in particular, and it gets weird in the service that the person's sitting in. Right? So Don Lamb's sitting right over here. Don Lamb's one of our elders. And uh, when I first got to New Hope, I was the youth minister. So I worked with 6th through 12th grade students. And I had not even been here for a year. And we took a group down to Florida, uh, to the beach, on this trip. It was like this fun trip, and we were having a good time. Now, Don and his wife, Jody were on the team that were helping with the youth at the time. They were some of the volunteers that we had, and they'd been working with us for a few months at the time. And again, I'd been here almost a year, so they'd kind of watched how I was leading the group. Well, we're getting... The, uh, everybody's, like, off doing something, and we find... Don and I find ourselves on this balcony, and it was, like, the perfect place for a heart-to-heart right? First of all, it's Florida. And don't even act like you weren't feeling me this morning when you came out of your house. You're like, dude, he's going to talk about Florida. And I'm, I, I agree. We were standing on the balcony and we were looking out at the ocean, right? It's kind of like, like a moment made for that. And so Don, he just takes advantage of the moment. He starts talking to me. He says, Rob, and uh, I remember, he'll, he'll lie. Don't ask him. Uh, no, he won't lie, but he doesn't remember it with the clarity that I do. Uh, we were, we're sitting on this balcony. He goes, Rob, I want to tell you something. And I'm thinking, man, this is perfect. He's going to kind of pour into me. It's going to be a good moment. And he says, I've been in a lot of different leadership positions. And he had. He'd served on different boards and in different positions. And he leads um, his, his own family farm. And, and so he, he's had a lot of different experiences. And we're sitting there. And he goes, and uh, in all my experiences, I want to tell you something about yourself. And I'm thinking, man, he's going to, ah, I've done something. This is cool. This is going to be a fun moment. And he goes, uh, in all my life, you are by far, and I'm like, all right, here we go, the worst. And I'm like, like, the worst delegator I have ever seen in my life. And I'm like, oh, man, here's what made it even better. Here's what he said next. All right, man, have a good night. And he went to bed. <laughs> like, he left. Like, that was it. Like, he followed up later, but in the moment, it was like, what are you doing to me? And... Uh, since that moment, I'm not, the good part is he didn't just leave me hanging. Like, since that moment, I've been on this journey. Like, that changed the, the way that I saw things, right? Because I was just, hey, get your job done. And it was like, no, help other people get things done. Empower other people. And ever since that time, I'm still not good at it. I'm still not the best at it. It's still a point where I have to back off and recognize that weakness in my life. But I don't know that I'd have the ability to recognize it if not for that conversation, that revival of sorts. You see, from that moment, I was presented with a truth, all right? It was a truth. It wasn't a fun truth. It wasn't a comfortable truth, but I was presented with a truth about myself, and I had a decision to make. Do I leave it at that? Okay, cool, and then just keep doing, or do I allow that truth to actually change the way I'm headed with my life? See, this is what takes place in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to watch this play out, this revival of sorts, but before we get there, let's come up with a working definition of revival. Chuck Swindoll, famous preacher, Here's what he says about revival, and then we'll tell you what our working definition is going to be. 
He says this, in every genuine revival in history, two major thrusts have always appeared. First, there has always been a proclamation of the Bible, God's word. So this truth is always proclaimed. And then secondly, there's always been a responsive mobilization of the believers, God's people. So God's people are presented with a truth. And when presented with the truth, they're then mobilized to respond to that truth. So here's going to be our working definition. I want you to think in these terms, both personally of revival and then corporately as a church. So this Revival, both personal and corporate, happens when God's people encounter and understand God's truth, God's word, and then are mobilized in obedient response to their understanding of God's word. And so what we're saying is this. That God's people, they encounter the word of God. We understand, we come to an understanding of God's word. And then when we understand God's word, we are actually encouraged, mobilized, empowered to then obediently respond to the truth that we've encountered. It's not simply show up on Sunday, listen to the truth, acknowledge the truth, put bows on the truth, grab the truth and put it on coffee mugs and make ourselves feel better about it. If you have a coffee mug with scripture, don't feel bad. But you you see what I'm saying? We just kind of leave it at this truth. Or do we allow that truth to actually become something we begin to obey? We actually live this truth out. And you know, what's fascinating to me is that when you study revival, if you study revival through church history, you don't revive the lost. It's always the saved that are revived. It's always God's people that experience revival. It's not the lost, right? God's people experience revival so that they will reach the lost. That's how that plays out in history. As a matter of fact, Jesus modeled this. In the last night of his life, Jesus was praying for, he had this long prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer. It's found in John 17. And in that entire prayer, not one time does Jesus pray for the lost. Not one time. Does that mean he didn't care about the lost? Absolutely not. John 3, 16, just a few chapters back. For God so loved the world. He so loved the world. But in John 17, he's praying for the believers, those who would follow him, to actually go out and reach those people. And if we have any hope, of actually living lives that will reach people that are far from God, that will actually present that truth in an authentic, real way, that will not come across as simply religious, that will not simply come across as something we feel like we have to do, is our heart has to change. That God's word actually has to change your heart because other people will read through the fake presentation of the gospel. But they cannot ignore a transformed heart. So we see this play out in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. So the walls are built, Now all of the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now, pause real quick. Two things take place here. One, it's fascinating to me that the walls are built and now the people want to hear from God's word. Like that's their desire. Like read us God's word. Now Ezra, we're going to learn here in a minute, had been around for 13 years teaching God's word. So they knew that what he was going to teach them and they wanted to hear that. But at the moment, they desire it. Walls are done. Now we need to pour into our spiritual lives. We need to really make sure that we're using these walls for their intended purpose. The other thing is this. This was Nehemiah's project. I want you to notice that. I mean, Nehemiah is the one who gave up comfort in the palace. Nehemiah is the one who came in and dealt with all of these whining people and organized them. Nehemiah is the one who dealt with external opposition, hatred, uh, all kinds of people coming in to try to destroy him. Nehemiah is the one that survived threats on his own life. Nehemiah is the one that finished the job in record time. In just over 50 days, he builds this entire wall. Nehemiah is the one that did all that. Now it's time 
to the dedication of the wall, if you will, the, the reviving of the people, and Nehemiah gladly, with no resentment, no problem whatsoever, steps aside and just empowers Ezra. Like, this is your gift. I've exercised my gift, and I'll continue to, but this is your gift. Proclaim God's word to the people. See, I love that about Nehemiah. He's, he doesn't have an inflated view of himself because of what he's accomplished. He knows who really accomplished it. So continuing on. So Ezra the priest, he brought the law. And the law meaning the Old Testament. And so they're reading through the Old Testament. A bunch of scrolls were brought out, and they'd undo these scrolls, and he would read them. And he, he was such an engaging reader. Look at what kind of takes place. Before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month, that'll be key in a minute, and he, read, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. Now, mid-sentence, let's pause. Early morning until midday. I don't want to hear anything about my long sermons anymore. All right? All, like, you want early morning till midday? We can make that happen. Right? So you should be going, be, man, thank you that Rob just doesn't preach that long. All right? So from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. So he stands on this platform that was created for this purpose. So a couple things. Ezra had been teaching for 13 years. 13 years he'd been teaching. The people were kind of, they'd heard him teach this. They understood how he taught. But yet he's this incredibly captivating teacher. But he understands it's not just about the platform. But the platform's fascinating. While building the walls... Nehemiah also commissioned somebody to build a platform so that God's word could be proclaimed. That's fascinating. The whole time he's building the project, he's thinking about the spiritual need of the people. It's not simply the walls that are going up. It's the walls are going up, but make sure the platform's done because there's going to come a time when we have to proclaim God's word because this is what it's all about. That was the focus of Nehemiah's leadership, was ultimately the spiritual development of the people. And so they stood up, and this model, we do it today, Right? Obviously, there's a raised platform, God's word being proclaimed, people hearing God's word, but it didn't end there. You notice he had 13 people standing beside him. And he commissioned these 13 people, among, among other people, to be spread out. And these people would then take God's word after it's proclaimed by Ezra, and they would make it so that everybody else could understand it. This is church, guys. Yeah, the early church modeled this. Jesus modeled this. He would read from the, from the law to the people, Right? He, he poured into 12 apostles who then went and carried on his work. The same, the same concept is here. Uh, the early church, someone would stand up and preach, but everybody else was involved in this. This was not about the platform. The platform had an intended purpose, and it was simply to elevate and proclaim God's word. And because of that, then people take it, and they go, and they explain it, and they make it understandable. Same thing should be happening here at New Hope. Everything that we do, everything that we do, the whole goal, the whole purpose should be clarifying God's word for all kinds of different people. When they come here, the different ministries we have, the different programs we have, uh, right here on Sunday morning, the whole goal is it's people would hear God's word and their lives would be changed because of it. That was Nehemiah's goal. That was the goal of Jesus. That was the goal of the early church. And that's our goal, to elevate and lift up God by proclaiming his word so lives and hearts can be changed forever. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all of the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Let it be, let it be. Lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads 
and they worshiped the Lord and their faces, with their faces to the ground. Verse 8, And they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense, so that people understood the reading. I didn't read through the names because I tried in first service, and it was simply a distraction. I'm, I struggled. I worked all week on it, but all these people helped, and they contributed, and they helped other people understand. So what happens is he stands up, he proclaims the law, and the goal of the people, the, these other leaders, was to then uh, translate the law when needed into the language of the, the people that didn't speak uh, that language. So a lot of times, they, if they spoke Aramaic, they would take the Hebrew and translate it to Aramaic. Other people would just expound on it and say, this is what that means, this is how you live that out. It was a picture of discipleship. They took the word of God, they made it understandable for people so that people's hearts would be changed and they would live different lives. These were intended to be those balcony conversations. Like, this is what Ezra's saying and this is what it means for you and this is how you live this out and this is how this changes your life. And as a result, people, their, their whole lives change. But the question I've got is like, is that not our job? Today, is that not our responsibility today? Is that not your responsibility for all the relationships you have in your life, for you to understand the word of God and help other people understand it too so that their lives will change forever and they'll experience transformation? Parents, let me ask you this. Is that not your primary purpose? It's to help your children and your grandchildren and your kids' friends understand that when they're in your home and in your presence, they're going to get God's word and you're going to make it understandable for them. This is what Jesus wanted from us. This is what he prayed for in John 17. He prayed that God, that they would be in this world, but not shaped by this world. This is what's going on with Nehemiah. Remember, these people had been exiled for, for so long, and now they're back in this place, but everything around them is different. And they're called to stand out and be God's people in the midst of a culture that did not want them to do that. And we are called to do the same. Jesus says, when you live out your faith, the world may not like it, so how, in the, how do we maintain a purity of heart in a world that wants to destroy our hearts? How do we do it? You do it with truth. Because the best way to combat a lie is what? It's with truth, right? How do we develop a holy life and a holy heart? We focus on the truth. So here's the thing I want you to understand. Parents, everybody in the room, the success of your family will not depend on your ability to isolate your children or yourself from lies. It will, it will depend on how well prepared you are with the truth. And that's a hard one for me because there are times where I just want to wrap my kids up. I've got three. I'm about to have four kids. I just want to wrap them up and say, no, you're not allowed to be. And, and there are things we should keep our kids from being exposed to. Yes and amen. I don't want an email. But when you, when you, when you, wrap your, you want to wrap your kids up and you want to say, no, 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 I don't want you exposed to anything, and I'm just going to helicopter and hover over you, and I'm going to protect you. And then you realize one day your arms can't reach. Or one day what happens when you're not there? And have you focused all of your time on isolating them from the lies or preparing them with the truth? Because one day they're going to need it. And the primary place they're going to get it is not here. It's in your home, under your guidance. That's the primary place your kids are going to get prepared, your spouse is going to get prepared, your grandchildren will get prepared, your kids' friends will get prepared. It's in your home when you live the life God has called you to live. Now, many of us in this political season, I can see on both sides, you demonstrate that your view of the truth is shaped by your culture and not by God's word. And you make it painfully obvious. Where is your source of truth? Where is your confidence coming from? Where do you want to bank your success? Where do you want to bank the success of your children? 
Look, my wife, I love her. She takes this so seriously. When my kids get, they, uh, my wife drives them to school in the morning. This will happen tomorrow morning. They've been on fall break, but on their way to school tomorrow morning, she makes them memorize scripture. Like they're memorizing tons of scripture every day they're driving to school, or she doesn't give them a lunchbox. I'm kidding. She'll give them the lunchbox, but, <laughs> but they're memorizing scripture like all the time. My kids, my wife is constantly exposing them to scripture. We try to monitor the books and the media that they're not just exposed to, but that they would understand. In fact, I've ruined, I've told you this, I've ruined movie watching for my kids. Like, I ruined it. I sit next to my kids, and I'm seeing spiritual realities, and right in the midst of it, I'm like, hey, bud, are you seeing this? Hey, hey, princess, are you noticing this? And they're like, dad, seriously, seriously. They're like, mom, can we have movie night when dad has a night meeting? Please, like, please, like, let him go, and we want to watch a movie. We just want to watch one. We don't want to study it, right? We do devotions at night. We do. We open up the Bible. We read the Bible together. We pray together. We want our kids exposed to God's truth. We read from a, a plethora of kids' Bibles. I mean, we have so many kids' Bibles, we could like, start a store. Like, but our kid, we're constantly wanting them to read it. We encourage our kids when they go to bed. We send them to bed a few minutes early and say, you can read. You've got to read the Bible. You can read. You've got 10 minutes laying in your bed. You can read the Bible. And they go and they're reading the Bible. I'm not saying this to say we're awesome, because all you've got to do is hang out with us for 10 minutes, and you know we're not. But we're trying, and we know. We're trying to look ahead and say, what, what is it? Look, my kids love sports. They love sports. I love that they love sports. My son is so into sports. Like, he can't wait. His uncle's in town. He can't wait to go watch football with his uncle this afternoon. Like, he loves sports. But we decided before they were born that we would not engage in activities would, that would prevent them from learning God's word. When they had an opportunity to go and learn, learn God's word, we weren't going to choose sports ahead of it. That's a tough decision. Oh, man, that sounds so good. Try living it. That's not easy. That's not easy. But we've decided this, and I love the way J.D. Greer, well-known preacher, he says it this way. My kids, my kids, and dads, hear me. They are not guaranteed to play a professional sport or be a professional athlete. My daughter loves gymnastics. My son loves basketball. The odds of him playing in the NBA and her being in the Olympics, come on. But they are 100% guaranteed to go to heaven or hell, and I choose to invest in that. That's not easy. That's worthwhile. So that's the greatest investment we can make, is to prepare them for that. And this is the focus of Ezra and Nehemiah. Say, we got these walls, great. We got walls, and we're protected. But what about your heart? What about your spiritual life? Is it protected? And he lead, he, they push hard into this because that's where life change starts, when you're exposed to the truth of God. And left with a decision. Will I let this change everything about me? Or will I leave it as a truth that I recognize? Continuing on, verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, all right, so they've exposed them to the truth, and now they say, this day is holy to the Lord our God. Don't mourn or weep. The people had experienced repentance at this point. God's word had revealed some things in their heart that needed to change, and it broke them down, and it was difficult, and it was hard. And it really rocked them. And so now they've, they've presented them with the law. Now they're going to come in with grace. This beautiful picture of what the gospel does. This day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they had heard the words of the law. And then they said to, him, to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went on their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to, 
and to make great rejoicing because their source of joy was God's fulfillment because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So upon their understanding, they were led to repentance. This is what takes place. Repentance is simply, look, I'm, I'm presented with truth. I recognize what that truth tells me about me. And now I'm, I'm grieved, I'm, I'm mourning. True repentance comes after your brokenness over your own sin. And you're left in this broken state realizing, I can't live up to that standard. I don't know what to do. Many people, maybe in this room, have had an issue with Christianity because of that. I mean, you set these standards that no one can live up to. I can't live up to those standards, and I want to stop and say, that's the point. That's the whole point. You'll never live up to it. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And so the, the, the leaders, they come in and say, don't you guys get it? Don't you guys get it? You can't live up to this standard. But God has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. So find your strength in his joy, the joy that he has over his children to extend his grace to them. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. But he says, he, he goes further and he says, and when you've experienced it, you go from repentance to experiencing grace. Now you have to go and share it. He says, share it with other people. Share it with all these other, that's discipleship. I love the way David Platt says it. He says this way, our mission is not to disinfect Christians and put them on a shelf, but to disciple them and put them into service for them to understand that the gospel changed every part of my life. And now I have to go and share it with as many people as I possibly can. So let me ask you this, are you doing that? Or has it simply been a truth that's been presented to you? Or has it changed your heart so that you might leave this place and go and offer this great experience of grace to as many people as possible? Could you get on your phone right now and call a non-Christian friend and it wouldn't be weird? Like, Why are they calling? It's Sunday. Uh-oh. Right? Go get a cup of coffee. Are you engaging with people? Are you having people in your home? Are you, are you just so excited for all that God's done for you that you have to share it with as many people as possible? I've been rocked by this chapter all week, man, all week. And I pull back and I learn a couple things that you get to learn now because <laughs> I learned them. A couple lessons, a couple applications, and we'll finish up. First lesson is this, that the law, the rules, if you will, of, of the Bible, they're an MRI. You've heard me say this before, they're an MRI. And you're not the surgeon that can fix what the MRI shows you is wrong. The law exposes what's gone wrong in your life. And so when I read the Bible, it shows me very clearly, I don't live up to the standard. If you've ever had an MRI, I can't stand them because I can't sit still. You watch me move around here. I'm like not good at it. And so a couple of years ago, I had an MRI on my knee and I get put into that tube and I'm, I'm not liking it, right? And so I'm moving around and the, the lady actually got stern with me. It was really uncomfortable. Uh, she came in over the microphone, interrupted the pleasant elevator music that they play and... Uh, She's like, stop moving. And I'm like, whoa, all right. Stop moving, okay. And I get a picture of my knee and they show me I had a torn meniscus in my knee. And I never looked at them and said, hey, let me go get back into that machine so it'll fix my knee, right? Because that's just not smart. No, and when I look at the Bible and it says, Rob, you've got anger issues or Rob, uh, you're not good at this and you're not good at that, I don't say, well, I'm just gonna try harder because I think I can fix this about myself. We have a whole culture formed around that, called self-help, it doesn't help. You're still broken when it's all said and done. And now, with the MRI, they, they bring in a specialized surgeon who evaluates the MRI, looks at the knee and says, do you need surgery or physical therapy? Both of which you can't do to yourself. And they send you to the specialist, and that's what begins to fix the problem. And the gospel says, you'll never fix what's gone wrong with you. 
but let me introduce you to the one who can. And slowly we start this process called sanctification where we allow God to just work on us more and more and more. And he begins to change us slowly, slowly, slowly. And it changes everything. And it all starts with an encounter with God's word. The second thing is this. Grace needs to be understood, experienced, and shared. See, I learn here that when I experience grace, I understand grace. I then have to be willing to experience that grace, walk in that grace, allow that grace to wash over me where my source of strength really is the joy of the Lord. But then I also have to share that with other people. I have to be willing to share that with others. So for some of you, that might mean that you've experienced grace and now you need to offer it. And there's someone who's really hurt you. And now you might need to forgive them for what they did to you. For some of you, it might mean that you have to be willing to accept forgiveness at this point because you understand that God accepted, accepted it from you through Jesus. I don't know what it looks like in your life. I don't. I, I don't know what that next step is for you when it comes to sharing grace, but I do know this. Grace, biblical grace, must be understood, experienced, and shared. Now, two questions to ask yourself as you're contemplating this throughout the week. Maybe bring them up in your discipleship groups and talk about them. Here's two questions. One, if we want, it's not really a question, it's a statement to talk about, sorry. If we want personal or corporate as a church revival, we must consistently expose ourselves to the Word of God. We must consistently expose ourselves to the Word of God. Let me give you one example of how this is happening here at our church and then challenge you personally. One example is this. Our elders years ago started meeting every Saturday morning. That's a big deal. Most, I can't even understand, like other people that I know in ministry, that doesn't happen. And they, they started meeting together as a result of studying Nehemiah years ago for the expressed purpose of reading scripture and praying. But they're not perfect. They're just people. And so they started to experience drought, and those meetings on Saturday kind of became something maybe they weren't supposed to, and they, the conversation and decision-making and evaluating things. And here recently, they just stopped and just experienced this. We just stopped and said, hey, we've let this become. It can't be that. And so yesterday morning, we got together, and we simply opened the Word. We read it together. We prayed. And it was awesome. Do you need to experience that same thing? Do you need to walk out of here today and get home and even during halftime while the culture's struggling, just open up, sorry, it's true, uh, open up your Bible, even during halftime, just read a little bit of scripture, allow the Lord to be working on you. Find moments and pockets and times where you just need to stop and say, I'm doing too much. I just need to get back to reading the word of God and allowing it to read me so that my life will change. Second thing is this, live right now with the end in mind. Right, Nehemiah, the whole time he's building the walls, he knew what was coming, spiritual revival. He knew that the walls were simply a means to an end. Nehemiah wasn't a monument maker. He didn't build monuments to just sit and look at the monument. He knew that the walls were simply going to create an environment where people could come, experience revival, so that they could then be equipped to leave and go share it with others. That's it. And the same's true of this place. Look, the kids' area, it's a bunch of walls, colorful paint, carpet, doors. That's it. That's all it is. But with the right motivation, it can become an environment where kids come and experience revival and walk out of this place with their lives changed. It could be a turning point for one kid, who knows, who will go enter the ministry one day and change the world for the sake of God's kingdom. 
See, it's just a means to an end. This whole building project, a means to an end. And we will not be monument makers as long as I get to be the preacher. But I want to challenge you. Don't be a personal monument maker. Don't set a goal of retirement. Don't set a goal of comfort and coast out the rest of your days. God wants you to not be a monument maker, but instead to live on mission and live with the end in mind. What are you doing right now to invest in your eternity? Because everything you do in this life should be preparing you for the millions and millions and millions of years you're going to live with Jesus. So what are you doing to invest in your eternity? And then what are you doing to invest in the eternity of other people?